0: Wow, such good listeners today. I love that. Um, well, again, welcome. I, um, I had a friend uh, from Washington come into town for about four hours on Friday. He uh, he called or texted on Wednesday and said, "Hey, I'm I'm buying a car in Colorado Springs, and I'd like to drop it off in your in your driveway until someone can come pick it up. Is that okay?" I'm like, sure. Uh, this is like maybe the second or third time this has happened in the last year or so, so I don't know what's going on with Washington, but apparently there's a car deficit. <laughs> but we're really, really glad whenever uh, people come, uh, you know, visit us for a little bit. And Finley, I consider Finley a really important personal friend. Um, he and I first met when I was in college, and he was a high school student. He was, um, I was leading this bicycle trip to the Canadian Rockies, and he was on that trip as a student. He was on this trip that I took earlier just this summer. That was sort of a reunion trip of um, those experiences. And uh, I really love Finley. We don't get to talk uh, very often together. And Amy's never had a chance really to meet him face to face. She certainly has heard me talk about him over the years. And um, we drove his car with him to the airport. And as we're talking and laughing and joking about uh, things, um, Amy just quite naturally asks, what do you do i got you know he kind of hinted at some of his life and she's like finley i wish i knew but what do you do he said well i work in an office (laughs) which is true as far as it goes right um he was uh the the youngest man to make partner in his regional accounting and consulting firm and he's been doing that um since he left college and his team's scattered everywhere he's He worked in an office, and also it's not an entire picture. But he never wants to say all of that because he knows what ends up happening is is we start putting in building blocks about what must be true about the rest of him in his life. So he just likes to say, you know, uh, I work in an office. I have a friend who's a pastor, and whenever someone asks him, like on a plane, what do you do? He says, ah, I'm a teacher. (laughs) I don't do that. Maybe I should, actually. But it sort of begs the question, when, when someone asks you, what do you do, how, how do you respond? In this moment we just had, what did you share? In a certain way, the passage we read today answers that question. As it turns out, the the gospel writers actually want us to fill some gaps once we know some primary things about Jesus. So let's pray, and we'll dig in. Lord, thank you. Thank you for bringing us all together here this morning. The various threads that are our lives somehow have been woven into this moment. And you know why. So we pray that what we've already been doing together would truly be glorifying to you, our singing and our our praying. As we come to this moment, Lord, this this moment of the message, we, we pray more than just that we would receive something from you, but also that you would receive our worship in it. Would you be pleased by not just what I say, but what we hear and how we consider it? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable and glorifying to you, for you are our Lord, rock, and redeemer, and all God's people said, amen. All right, this is a part three of a sort of five-week series that we simply have just called, But first. As we think about turning the calendar over to 2020, there's all sorts of things that I think most of us want to find some way and pattern of renewal. We're pretty quiet about it. I will tell you, I received dozens of emails from um, our, uh, our church after last week's sermon, and they are so, I'm not going to talk about any specifics, but they are so beautiful and earnest and eager, and quirky. A little bit of all of that somewhere in that mix as I received your uh, resolutions for me to pray for for you. We have all sorts of plans, all sorts of things that we want to do, that we want to have be true of us in 2020. I, I have things that I want to have true of me in this year. I have resolutions for good. Our, our church has resolutions for good. This is going to be a really big year for our church. Just a couple weeks, right here, around right now, we'll, at this exact moment, we'll start hearing about what our elders understand is the vision of, for our church's future. And here's what I know about all those things. They can set the wrong horizon for us. We can point our nose and our life towards this thing, that's not actually Jesus. And so if we wanted to say, just before we get into all of that hubbub, all of that other stuff, let's keep our nose pointed to Jesus. That's all good, but first, Jesus. And what we've done is simply just sort of outlined a simple series through the, gospel, the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. So far, uh, two weeks ago, we um, heard from Pastor Jane where Jesus announces the coming kingdom. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Last week, we saw this moment right after that when Jesus comes up to people in the middle of their good lives and says, Hey, follow me. Calls them into a life of discipleship. And today, well, there's something kind of surprising about today. So why don't we read it together and I'll point some things out to you. So, um, Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 21. I love it when people bring their Bibles so they can read them and sort of tangibly touch them, grab the one in front of you. But friends, if you have a Bible, bring it. I bring mine. (laughs) Right? Bring your Bibles. But for those of you who didn't, it's also be on the screen. Mark chapter one, verse 21. They went to Capernaum, Jesus and his new disciples, And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and he began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey Him. News about Him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Friends, beginnings matter. Did you know that we usually make a snap judgment about almost any topic or any person or anything within about 12 to 15 seconds of being confronted with a decision? And then after that, most of our mental energy is spent confirming what we've already decided. Did you know that? The first time you meet someone, when you're confronted with should I buy this thing or this thing, you've you've made a decision, typically speaking, within twelve to fifteen seconds. Beginnings matter. As it turns out, they also really matter in the writing of the Gospels. These these four Gospels, we're just going to be talking specifically about Mark today, but all four Gospels, they, they start in a way that they say, we want you to know this especially about Jesus. We don't want you to miss this particular thing. The Gospels are not just history in sort of this like newspaper sort of way, but they're artistry, they're narrative, And they want to push forward something about Jesus that we we might miss in just our casual reading of it. So, for example, the the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus Jesus is a teacher. He's a reformer. What we see very early on in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 especially is the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus says, I bring a new law. Not only that I bring a new law, but he says basically he is the new law. What we see in Luke, when we read Luke, the first, the first things we see Jesus doing as his ministry begins is he, he combines word and action and concern for the poor and the oppressed. Luke has this particular concern for those who are the sort of the forgotten underbelly of any culture and time period. In the Gospel of John, what we see about Jesus, John's really making to make sure that we see that that God, through Jesus, is really a God of abundance. That He overcomes almost any sorts of decline that we might have. It's in the Gospel of John that we see the raising of Lazarus. There's like an abundance of life. In the opening couple of chapters of the Gospel of John, we see that, that Jesus is at a party and He turns... It's about 120 gallons of water into wine. That's about 600 bottles. That's That's an abundant amount of party, friends. Every single gospel writer says, of all the things we want you to know about Jesus, we're going to push one of those things forward. They're all true. They're all good. They all point to something we need to know in our own lives, and Mark is no different. And what we see in the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus is a bondage breaker. What we see in the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus is a, Jesus is a confronter. In a way that, honestly, I often forget about. I often think of Jesus, maybe the rest of you are like this, like, we can't help it. Like, there's this tidal wave of Jesus is meek and mild and gentle, and he's sort of like, he's kind of just like water kind of pours his way through life and ends up at the end. But Mark tells this story first so that we don't forget it. Jesus has come actually to confront He says the kingdom of God is near, and he puts himself in the front line and says, there are going to be powers that oppose this kingdom. Jesus is a fighter. He opposes these supremacies that show up in our life and in our cultures. He sees them for what they are. He sees that we need to be freed from them. He, he comes to stop the nightmare of how we're shackled in heart and mind and, and soul. He comes to rescue individuals, people, nations. Mark shows us first and then over and over and over again that Jesus is a fighter. And his authority, he comes to confront. So, can I just ask you, what needs to be confronted in your life? What have you carried into this place as a worshiper of God that needs to be confronted and opposed? So, here's a thing that I want you to know I just assume about us all. there are likely parts of your life that Jesus opposes. I assume that there are parts of your way of living, your way of thinking, that Jesus wants to confront. Do you know what they are? Here's something I had never really noticed and thought before. When I... Uh, whenever I've read this passage in the past, I'll, I'll confess that I've been sort of enamored of the exorcism moment, and I've often thought of this man the way we do in some of the other stories that we see of exorcisms, like, for example, when Jesus exercises you know, legion out of this man who's gone out of his mind, he's out of control, and throws him into a pig uh, herd, and the, the whole herd dies. I think of some of the other places where there's some sort of possession and people are out of their minds. They're screaming. They're uncontainable. Everyone knows that they're, they're like just on the hinge of even actually still being human. But friends, that's actually, that's actually not this story. I've been thinking about this man and this moment in the, in the wrong way. You see, for the most part, synagogues, we're just a very settled group of people. There was not sort of like the emphasis on, on conversion and growth that there is, in the, certainly in the Protestant American church. So it's very likely that this man who was there came to worship in synagogue every week. He was just a person who carried something that opposed God into the room with him kind of like me, and kind of like you. He just sort of probably, probably, he always sat in the same place. Everyone knew where he sat. Probably, actually, people sort of had conversations with him. They knew who he was and what he was like and what he was about. He just was a synagogue worshiper because I don't want to call anyone out as possessed. He probably sat right there in the front row. but he's been carrying something with him. He may not doesn't we don't know if he knew it or not. we don't know if others knew it or not. But the people who were there did not think of him as sort of like a novel interesting spiritual crazy person he had a place he was part of the community and he brought opposition with him he was carrying it with him most people probably didn't know friends are you carrying something with you Is there a spiritual opposition in your heart, in your mind, in your way of life, in your habits that keep you from intimacy with God? Well, this man is, he's like that. And he hears the teaching of Jesus, and something rattles it loose, and he cries out, What do you want? Something about the person and authority and teaching of Jesus upsets this all, and this man cries out, and something that he has sort of opposes God. And what really seems very clear to me as I read the Gospels is is Jesus came to confront whatever you're carrying. He came to do it then, and he comes to do it now. In the 1500s, in sort the, um, the, of the beginning of the, um, the Protestant uh, Reformation, you know, Lutherans are doing their thing, the Reformed church, like us, doing their thing, Anabaptists doing their thing. There was, um, the Reformed church had this saying that they uh, used often, it's been used often since, that the church is reformed and always reforming. That we have sought as a church to do everything we can to point our nose and our eyes and our lives as a people towards God. We've reformed away from things that, some things that felt broken to us at the time. But that work is ongoing. We are also reforming. There's more work yet to do for us to be the faithful followers of Christ as the people we're called to be. And I just take it as axiomatic. That we are also transformed and need transforming. I take it as axiomatic that you have been saved by Jesus Christ. You are now a child of God. You have received the heir of the promise of salvation. You are transformed into something you were not. And now we need some transforming. I assume there are some ongoing things that have sort of their talents in your life that oppose God and the ongoing transformation that God wants to do in you. So, friends, what needs to be confronted? What in your life opposes Jesus Christ? So, here's the good news of this small little passage. Jesus has the authority to do something about it. That's what they marvel at. That's what they're surprised by. That's what their hearts are gladdened by. The fact that Jesus has the authority in his teaching to actually confront the opposition that's right there in the room. Can I just say something that I, um, I'm, I've been blown away by? They are not surprised by, worried about, obsessed over the possession. The demon possession is not a thing for them. Why not? I mean, I've been um, multiple times over my lifetime. I sort of sat up late night with with friends or whomever else, and we've kind of just talked about what are our interactions like with the spiritual forces? What does spiritual warfare look like? We, we You know, I, I have a couple of stories that kind of freak me out, and I wonder, did those things really happen? Is there really a spiritual realm that acts that way? Maybe you've been in conversations like that. Now, what's interesting is the first people who heard Jesus, who were there in the room, they are not surprised at all by the fact that there is spiritual oppression. There is like no shock at all that there is actual opposition, spiritual evil that hovers around the human experience. And yet that's a thing that I often sort of I wonder about. My first draft of this sermon is like really focused on what am I going to say about demons? But here's the thing I want to point out to you. It was just accepted reality. There was no wondering. They knew. No one wondered if spiritual oppression was real. It was. And it is. There is real spiritual evil attached to our lives. We often mask it in the way that I assume that this man did, and now I'm pointing to him, um, in this synagogue story. But friends, Jesus has the authority to confront that. And that's the thing that they're most amazed by Our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ across the globe—they they don't wonder. They don't wonder if there's a spiritual reality that's right at work, right behind us, right around us, working sometimes in us and through us. They know. And so, as I read this passage and I tried to register what, like, the surprise that these first synagogue congregants had. This is this is what I wondered. Do I? do I wonder at the right things? As I read the scriptures, do I wonder at the right things? Do I let my mind hover around the things that are truly important to know about Jesus? Or do I just sort of focus on the novel? Sometimes it's been true that pastors and theologians, they really focus on the novel and they forget what's so important about the clarity and authority of the teaching of Jesus. We go askew because we we don't wonder at the right things. And what I see here in this passage is the men and women who are there part of listening to this story the most important thing that they want us to know is this. Jesus has real authority and he really wants to exercise it on your behalf. That's the important thing. Scriptures are kind of bored with the fact like it doesn't ever even ask the question if demons are real. They just are. What are you going to do about it? Well, Mark says, Jesus is a fighter on your behalf. He has the authority and the power to actually do something about it. And it's through His teaching, which we can all decide to access. It can free those who are in bondage. There's not some sort of magic spell or incantation of prayer. It's just listening to and attending to the teaching of Jesus. You see, in, in this little story, both the, the teaching itself and the exorcism are a kind of an exorcism. Both radically shift the way we understand God's work in the world. They drive out, both the teaching and the exorcism, drive out that which is anti-kingdom. They confront that which is anti god You probably know this story. You've heard this story. Maybe you've even lived this story. People hear the teaching of Jesus and the first time they hear about forgiveness they're like, I'm I'm not doing that. But then they seek reconciliation with their long estranged brother or sister. People hear the teaching of Jesus and the free gift of grace that's common to all and they find themselves sort of slowly letting go of what they think of as theirs. They find themselves living a new kind of a generosity. The first church where I served in Gig Harbor, Washington, there um, there was a man there who was a firefighter. And he became a firefighter because he was really intrigued by the lifestyle. He really, really wanted to work for a day and then have two or three days off. And he really, really wanted those days to be his. Do not tell me what to do on my days off. They are mine. Do not tell me how to spend money on the gear that I want for my days off. It's my money. It's my gear. It's my time. But then somewhere along the line, before I knew him, the authority of Jesus slipped into a crack in his life. And he fought it. And he fought it. But then that self centered worship was expelled out of his life. And when I left, he was um, discipling, mentoring know, four, five men in their 20s and how to follow Jesus. I guess if I'm going to have some days off, I should invest in people, not myself. I guess, if I'm going to have this gear, I should share it with others so I can invest in people and they can follow Jesus. That happens through the authority of God's teaching. What have you been carrying that needs to be expelled? What's keeping you from a flourishing life in Christ. This is kind of the pattern that we see in the Gospel of Mark um, over and over and over again. We'll get there in a second. So first of all, there's teaching. And what's interesting about the Gospel of Mark, actually, is there is this constant reference that Jesus has authority, and his authority comes through in and and by his teaching. But you know what we never really see in the Gospel of Mark? The actual contents of the teaching. Got to go to Matthew or Luke for that. But the teaching itself is enough there to rise up in crowds or individuals in anti-kingdom protest. I won't do that. Let me give you an example. In my first year here, I was still getting used to, like, all of the, um, the life of Boulder and the working out and the exercise and all the stuff. I think I'm still getting used to it. And somewhere in that first three or four months, um, I, I said in a sermon that it's possible, just maybe, that we should invest 20 minutes that we spend right now working out, actually seeking intimacy with Jesus. I said, maybe, just possibly, there's, there's something that's become out of balance of our life and we've made an, an idol out of something that's supposed to be healthy. What if we recalibrated, I asked, and spent some time seeking the goodness, the grace, the love, the intimacy that is made possible with God through Jesus Christ. Then, you know, we sang our closing hymn and walking out, I I end up um, walking out behind uh, two women. You might be in this room. I have no idea. I can't remember. And as I'm walking, I hear them say, one says to the other, well, I am never doing that. (laughs) Now, you could maybe... Be frustrated by that. But the way that I think of that is simply as anti-kingdom protest. something been dislodged in her heart, something that was settled, something that she brought in with her, that was opposed to the goodness of God. something she hadn't even maybe even thought of before has now been rattled loose. And the first thing that happens is there's this push against it. And then there's this expulsion. And evil's retreat and defeat. That's what we see in the Gospel of Mark. There's teaching, there's protest, there's expulsion and transformation. The thing about the Gospel of Mark is that pattern is not supposed to be just in the pages but in you. I think one of the things that I said to you last week is when you read the Gospel of Mark, you really are invited to put yourself into the story. When Jesus says, come follow me, it's not sort of just this thing out there. He's really talking to you. And when Jesus addresses this person in the synagogue, he's not sort of just addressing this person in the synagogue. He's addressing you because here's what he knows. Here's what Jesus knows. He knows and he sees us and he knows us better than we know ourselves than we know ourselves And he knows what we're asking, often silently, but we could never give voice to it. We ask, what do you want from us, Jesus? What do you want? And we ask that question, and it comes from our own heaviness, our own oppression, maybe even our own possession. And what Jesus says to this man, he says to you, be silent. I'll take care of this. Be silent. See, I know I'm the same way. When we're confronted with these things, we almost always come up with a plan. We almost always have a set of things and a list and things we're going to do and not do. We're going to, like, not do this thing, we're going to start doing this thing, we're going to not look at that anymore, but instead we're going to, you know, all the things. But the gospel is actually that Jesus goes first. Jesus says, be silent. I'll take care of it. Friends, is there some heaviness you carry? The scriptures want to know. Is there something you've brought with you today? Now I I want you to take the steps. Follow the list. Meet the professional. Contact the therapist. Listen to the coach. But first, let Jesus be the fighter in your life. First, let Jesus be the fighter in your life. Lord, we thank you and praise you for this word. Would you pray that you would receive it as worship? But Lord, we know that in the vast canopy of space, every moment is worship lived out before you. And so, these next few moments of prayer, Lord, we, we ask you, what do you want from us? Would you help us to see and identify and recognize what you see in us? And Lord, as you have with this man in the synagogue, would you set us free? Would you help us to know that we are both transformed and transforming through the work of Christ? Lord, I believe the people of this church are truly beautiful and exquisite in your sight. Would you help us to become more and more who you've already made us to be?